uh, to introduce our speaker this morning, Dr. Dr. Richard Beck. Uh, Richard is the uh, chair of the psychology department at Abilene Christian University and uh, professor there. Um, he is uh, also the author of, of several books that um, really bring together in a very fine fashion what it means to be believers in Christ as well as, as bringing the insights into psychology to bear those things together, many good books. Um, uh, Richard is a, is a family man and he's, a, he's an elder at the uh, Highland Church of Christ and he's a person that's had a, a great deal of effect on a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of students especially through the years. We had the pleasure of having Richard here yesterday where he taught us some really important things about building healthy identity uh, in our lives and especially building healthy identity um, in Jesus Christ as, as our as our Savior and as, as we are beloved children of God. So it's really a pleasure to have Richard here uh, with us. And Richard, come forth and preach the word to us. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's good to be here. Um, thank you so much for your hospitality. You, you are a lovely family. And, um, and I, I travel around to lots of churches. And um, I still find the church to be a bit of a miracle how quickly, given, given how we share the deepest things in common, how quickly we can become friends and family. And so thank you for welcoming me here this, this weekend. If you were not here yesterday, I'm going to continue some of those thoughts and extend them a little bit um, as well. And I have two sermons for you this morning. Uh, they'll both be short sermons, so that the total time won't be doubled. But I have two really different kind of sermons I would like to preach and kind of combine them uh, together. First sermon is about love stories. And the second sermon is about the devil. We'll see how those go together, okay? Um, already some of you look a little nervous. Uh, but let's begin with happy things. Let's begin with love stories. Uh, anybody a fan of Hallmark movies? Okay, all right. It's that time, right? If, you, if you're a fan of Hallmark movies, you like a good love story. You like, and, and I, um, I like a flirtatious snowball fight as much as the next guy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, those two are going to get together when they're making hot chocolate together or going to go rescue the little town. Uh, so these are kind of a tradition in my family, the Hallmark movie. They're like the love story. And so I want to begin with love stories. Um, what uh, many would consider maybe the very first kind of really romantic love story in Scripture. Um, and it's in Genesis uh, 29. And, and you know this story. This is the story of Jacob and... and uh, and Rachel. So I'm in Genesis 29, uh, verse 16. So if you don't know the story, Jacob has gone uh, to a far land, and there he meets uh, Laban, an uncle, and he has two daughters. And one of them um, is going to be the love of, of Jacob's life. And so picking up here in verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was named Rachel. Now Leah had weak eyes. I'm not sure what that means. But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. I know exactly what that means. I think I know what they're getting at there. Um, and so since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I will work for you seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. And so Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel. And the Bible says, and his love with, 
for her was so strong that it seemed but a few days. Those seven years passed like a blink of an eye. This is a Hallmark movie. <laughs> and finally, it came time to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife and I can sleep with her. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. And so when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was not Rachel, it was, it was Leah. What have you done to me, Jacob said to Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? And Laban says, it's not our custom here to marry off our younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over, and then I'll give you Rachel, too, provided you promise to work for another seven years. And so Jacob agreed to work for another seven years. And then a week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel as well. And so they live happily ever after, right? There's your Hallmark movie. Um, and so we love that story. You know, Jacob falling in love with Rachel. Rachel seems to be the prom queen, right? She seems to be the beautiful girl. And so we love that story. He finally gets the girl. I want to talk about Leah, though, this morning. What does it feel like to be Leah in the story. And by the way, who has weak eyes in this story? Leah or Jacob? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, I, I just think that's unfair. Like, how does he not know? I, I blame alcohol and a lack of electrical lighting. That's the only reasons <laughs> I can figure out what happened that night, that he was confused about what happened. Um, weak eyes, huh? What does it feel like to be Leah in this story? Um, the one that isn't wanted. We like the romance. We like the guy getting the girl. Um, that fits the hallmark type. But a lot of our love stories are more like Leah's love story. Uh, feeling left out. Feeling not included. If not by a husband or a boyfriend, then by community. We feel on the edge. We feel unwanted and unloved for whatever reason that might be. Our love stories have been a little bit sad and rocky. They don't quite fit into the happily ever after or the Hallmark movie. Um, and I was reminded of this uh, some years ago. I teach a Bible study at a maximum security prison north of my hometown. And as a part of that study one day, I was talking about the love of God, very similar material that I was talking about yesterday, right? How God loves us. And our identity is found in the love of God. And as I was preaching this message, uh, Steve was on the front row and Steve raised his hand. I called on Steve. He goes, how can I believe that? That God loves me. When I have never heard another human being in my life say that they love me. My mother never said she loved me. My father never said he loved me. And no other person, no one ever, lover or girlfriend or friend ever said, Steve, I love you. Steve is Leah. What does it feel like to go through your whole life never feeling any affection, any love? And because Steve's Leah, because he's never felt wanted or included, he finds the message of the love of God unbelievable. Uh, 
the, the, the traumas of his own life, the, 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 his, his rocky experience with love from family and friends and for romantic partners that he just can't find the love of God believable. And I think a lot of us are in that situation. We, yes, yeah, at one level we know I can stand up here and preach the love of God to you all day long. And at one level it computes. But at the deepest emotional level, where we want to feel deeply loved, there's something deep down in there that doesn't really believe it. Not, not really. My second sermon about the devil comes from Revelation uh, 12. And I get that this is a bit of a switcheroo. Because now we're going to be talking about a war in heaven. Revelation 12, um, uh, the, the John there is looking um, at these heavenly visions, and he sees a war break out in heaven. And I want to pick up the story here in verse 7, uh, Revelation 12, verse 7. Then there was a, a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. And this great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one who had deceived the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and all his angels. And then I heard a loud voice shouting from the heavens, It has come in last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses us before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. Picking up in verse 13. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 17. And the dragon was angry with the woman. And then he declared war against her children. That's us. He declared war against the rest of her children, all those who keep God's commandments and maintain the testimony of Jesus. I, I find this like one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture, this description of the devil um, as this one who accuses us day and night before the throne of God. I find that an absolutely terrifying idea. Um, there, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, job in the Catholic tradition. If, if you were going to be promoting somebody to be a saint, you know how in the Catholic tradition people get promoted to be saints, and that's a long, arduous process to be declared a saint in the Catholic Church. Lots of levels, lots of conversation. But at one point, there's actually kind of like a courtroom case about the saint where uh, they kind of argue um, for and against. And so they have to appoint somebody to be the accuser, right? They have to appoint somebody to make the argument as best as they can make it about why this delightful human being, because, you know, you don't usually get nominated to be a saint unless you're a really good person, why this beautiful person um, doesn't deserve to be a saint. Why they don't deserve that status. And so they got to appoint somebody for that job, somebody to bring, like in Revelation 12, an accusation 
against a saint. And you know the name of this Vatican-appointed accuser. You've heard of it before. What's the name of this position? You might know? The devil's advocate. That's what, the, that's what the word devil means. The word devil means accuser. It, it's a legal term. It is functionally a prosecuting attorney. And so the devil's advocate is the prosecuting attorney, bringing accusation just like here in Revelation 12. And I find that prospect, that there is a devil's advocate in heaven that would accuse you and I day and night before the throne of God. Because I imagine it kind of would go down like this. When I die, I'd be walking up to the pearly gates. And there would be the devil out front. And I imagine him in kind of a very nice suit with a briefcase. And as I approach, the devil would see me coming down the road and look at his watch and go, you are right on time. And I have been waiting for this day for years. I would go shuffling into the courtroom of heaven, go over to the defense table, and the devil would walk over there, open up his briefcase with a click, click, and pull out a file this thick on me. And there in the courtroom of heaven, before all the saints and the angels and God himself, the devil's advocate would bring accusation against me. He'd open up that file, lick his finger, go to page one, and go, shall we begin? When you were six... I go, six? Like, start at the beginning. When you hit your little brother. Like, have you met my little brother? You deserved everything you got. But it would begin this litany of accusation. Every little lie. Every website you ever visited flashed on the screen of heaven. Every skeleton in your closet, every shameful secret, all of the muck and the darkness, all the hurt you have caused, all the regrets, every last sad, little, despicable thing you have done, drug out in full view, in complete naked exposure. And I imagine for me, this file would be very long. And then this would go on for hours, if not days. And then when the devil finally turned the last page on the last thing I ever did to stab somebody in the back, one more lie I told to a friend or to my wife, one last shady secret dropped out there like a corpse for everybody to see my shame. And the devil would slowly fold the file, put it back in the briefcase and shut it. And there before God and the angels, he would point at me and say, this one doesn't deserve to get in. And he's right. And I don't really have a defense at that point. But the gospel is that the voice that accuses you day and night before the throne of God is not there. Has been thrown out of heaven to earth. And so that when we get to the pearly gates, 
and we stand in the courtroom of God, and we look over to the devil's advocate, to the prosecuting attorney table, it is empty. And instead of accusation being brought against us, what you're going to feel is a big arm come around your shoulder. As Jesus stands next to you, as the one who will intercede, and that's what we're celebrating here with Advent, right? The one who took on flesh so that he can be a better high priest, right? That he can speak a better word, as the scripture says, instead of the word, the word of the blood of Abel, the one that brings accusation against us, the blood we have shed, literally or figuratively, but his blood speaks a better word, one of forgiveness and grace. And so that big arm comes around us, and Jesus looks at his father, and he goes, Dad, she's my friend. He is my friend and brother. And what you're going to get on that day is not accusation, but defense. Empathy. That's what, that's what Christmas is. It is God's empathy. For how hard it is down here. He's like, Dad, I understand what it was like to be a person, a human being. I understand what, how hard that is. And, and well done, my good and faithful servant. And so that's the gospel. And yet we don't experience it quite that way all the time. Because why? Because that voice of accusation, is it gone? Where does it say, Revelation? Is it gone? God doesn't listen to it anymore. It's been thrown out of heaven, but where is it now? It is, it is on earth pursuing us relentlessly. Right? That accusation is still being heard. God doesn't hear it anymore, but we do. And I think somebody said, where do you hear it most? Where do you hear that voice of accusation, the, the voice that accuses you? Say, you're not worthy, you don't deserve it. Where do you hear that voice? In your own head. You look in the mirror and you bring accusation against yourself. That deep voice deep down there that says you don't deserve it. Not what you have done. Not, not given the secrets you're keeping. Not given the pain and the hurt you've caused. Because don't we look back at our lives with like a lot of regret? Aren't we going to get to the end of it with a lot of loose ends? Bridges that never got mended. Apologies that were never given. We're looking back at a kind of a mixed history here. And all of that pain and trauma and hurt that we've caused, we just feel like, I don't really deserve this. And so the voice of accusation accuses us on earth day and night. I was, I was struck by an example of this recently. Um, Nadia Boltz Weber is an author and a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. And she uh, shares this story in one of her books. How she was uh, uh, inviting the church for a weekend retreat. And she was sending out the email invites to all of her church, small little church. And as she was sending out the email invites to the church retreat, she got to uh, John and hesitated. Because John was hard to get along with. He was just socially awkward. He was kind of particularly obsessed with her. you know. And she just knew if John was on this retreat, I would get no retreat. He would just follow me around. He would talk my head off. It was going to be a hard weekend if John got invited. And in a moment of weakness, she skipped his name and did not invite him to the church retreat. She's the pastor. And then he died. And she had to preach his funeral. 
And so now she's going to stand over John's body knowing what she had done. And that voice of accusation starts racing through her head. And she cannot forgive herself. And what I love and hate about this illustration is how petty it was. Right? It, was a, it was a little thing. Just leave him. Just don't invite him. Not a, not a huge, she didn't murder anybody. Just a little slight, little, you know, slight. And what I hate and love about that is we do that all the time, do we not? Those little things. And the eternal magnitude of those little things is only revealed because he died. Right? She might have kind of gotten away with it if he hadn't died, right? But when he died, she realized exactly how harsh and mean that was. And she has to preach his funeral, and she cannot forgive herself. That voice of accusation is ringing in her head. And so she calls another friend who's a pastor. And she goes, I have to come and confess this sin to you. I cannot preach the funeral unless I confess this. And she goes, and she tells the whole sad story. And her friend hears it and says, okay, first of all, Nadia, that's bad. <laughs> okay, like, like, that's bad. But then she says, but Jesus died for your sins. Even that one. Even that one. And isn't that the hard part for us? Like, we can accept forgiveness to, to an extent. Like, yes, Jesus forgives me, right? But there's probably for a lot of us today something that we feel like we just can't be forgiven for. Yes, I know I'm forgiven. But for that one, and that doubt, right? That, that self-accusation causes us to not be able to claim the abundant life to believe in this grace we're very it's very similar to what steve was dealing with and so let me pull these two sermons together because yesterday i spent a lot of time saying that the secret to happiness the secret to wholeness the secret to identity is to accept the love of christ and your identity as a beloved child of god we stand with jesus in the river jordan and we hear god's voice above us say you are my beloved child and at one level, that sounds delightful, except for two reasons. Steve, how can I believe that, given the rough history I've had with love? The Leah moments in our lives when we've been excluded, that cause us to doubt the love of God. But if it's not that, if it's not our troubled history with love, then it's the voice of accusation. It is something we have done. It's some secret we're sitting on. It's some pain we've caused that we cannot forgive ourselves. God might have forgiven us, but we can't forgive ourselves. And for one of those two reasons, this identity of God's love that is poured out upon us becomes suspect. Can we really believe it? And so this is what I want to conclude with this weekend, is a, is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, about, about this situation we find ourselves in. 
Bonhoeffer wrote this. Help must come to us from the outside. Let me say that again. Help comes to us from the outside. Because God has willed that we should seek and find God's living word in the testimony of other Christians. In the mouths, on the lips of other human beings. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who will speak God's word to them. We need each other again and again when we become uncertain and disheartened. Because why? Because living by our own resources, we cannot help ourselves without cheating ourselves out of the truth. Isn't that what we do all the time? We can't help ourselves because by yourself, on your own, looking in the mirror with your troubled love history or the accusation in your mind, you will look in that mirror and you will cheat yourself out of the truth. So we need each other as bearers and proclaimers of that divine word of salvation and grace. For the Christ, listen to this, for the Christ in our hearts is weaker than the Christ in on the lips of other Christians. The Christ in your heart is weaker than the Christ that comes to you on the lips of other Christians. Because our own hearts are uncertain, for whatever reason. But the hearts of our brothers and sisters is sure. And so I wanted to end this weekend not just saying, hey, believe in the love of God. Because a lot of us find it unbelievable. Hard to believe. In Ephesians, Paul prays a prayer. He goes, I pray that you have the power to comprehend, which is interesting. A lot of us, when we think of power, think of lifting a heavy weight. And for a lot of us, believing in the grace of God is the heaviest weight you will ever lift. To believe in this. Not just intellectually, but in your heart, right? To really be convicted of this. A lot of us are intellectual Christians. Very few of us are emotional Christians. Our minds are convinced, our hearts are uncertain and unsteady. And so Paul says, I pray that you have the power to comprehend this. I pray that you have the power to believe this. And what is it? What power do you need to believe, to comprehend how wide, how high, how deep is the love of Christ Jesus for you? To believe that. How do we get that power? Willpower? Willpower? I want to end with this. We get that power from each other. We get that power because when our hearts are uncertain, unsure, when we are cheating ourselves out of the truth, we show up here on a Sunday and we show up in, around our tables and our coffees and we speak life back into each other because the Christ in your lips is stronger than the Christ in my uncertain, restless, doubting heart. We need each other. That's why we come here to be reminded again, to say these words over and over again. And so every Monday night, I stand before Steve, and I say to Steve, I love you. And drop by drop, 
the love of God becomes believable to Steve because I stand there as his God's representative. That's what you are, right? What is your vocation on this earth? You are priests. You are priests. You speak God's word to each other. In the name of God, you stand before each other and you say, you are loved and you offer reminders of God's forgiveness. You don't forgive them, but you remind each other in the name of Jesus Christ, God has forgiven your sins, even that one. And you need to hear it over and over again. Ezekiel 37, the prophet stands in a valley of dry bones. Horizon, horizon, just deadness. And the God, God asked the prophet, he says, uh, son of man, can these bones live again? And I, I would argue that that's a question a lot of us ask about our lives. Can anything come of this? It seems I'm stuck. And from horizon to horizon, I see no potential. I see no life. I just see deadness. And the prophet says, only you, Lord, know. And then he says this, prophesy over the bones that you shall live again. That is your job for each other. You stand over the deadness. Somebody comes to you and says, this is, this is the mess. This is my life. It seems broken and stuck. All I have is this, this kind of sad situation and the messes that I've made. And you will stand in the valley of dry bones for each other and you will be prophets. You will be prophets for each other and you will say, you will, in the name of Jesus, you will live again. There is resurrection. And so that, I want you to have that anointing. I want you to have that priestly duty to be prophets over valleys of dry bones for each other. Over coffee, over a text message, and on a Sunday. Let me start inviting the, the praise team back up here. Um, and as we start kind of moving towards communion, let me come back to the story of Leah. The real love story in Leah isn't Jacob and Rachel. The real love story about Leah's story is what happens next. So he gets the girl in the Hallmark movie. You know, he gets the girl and it's happily ever after. And then the Bible says this, and it's one of my favorite lines in Scripture. The Scripture says, And God saw that Leah was not loved. God saw that Leah was not loved, that she'd been left out of that story. And so he makes Rachel barren for a season. She's going to have her child, but he, he kind of steps into this sad situation. He kind of carves out a moment for Leah, seeing that she was not loved. And Leah has four boys, four sons. And one of the sons is Judah. And who's Judah? That is the line of the kings, is it not? Right? Through the line of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, will come King David. And then who will come even later from the line of Judah? Jesus Christ. Don't you find that beautiful? That Jesus 
is Leah's child. Jesus stands before the world as a sign of love from the one who wasn't loved. And this meal that we partake in is that story, your story, mine. This meal stands before you as a sacrament and a reminder once again that God saw that you were not loved. That God saw that we were unrighteous and loved us anyway. Let us stand as we sing that song.
Brothers and sisters, stay standing as we say our confession before the table. We confess to each other and to you, our creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, our paths of self-centeredness. We confess that we have not loved you with our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. So bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Forgive us of getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. 